This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. to one another in a way that men are just not. I think that Clytemester and Penelope, they're held up as these as these two examples of wives, but nobody at any point seems to be saying, well, how do Odysseus and Agamemnon stack up as husbands? Because neither of them um, would come out of that comparison particularly well. So I, I, really, I really felt that as well. But I knew these stories weren't as well known as, as some versions of them were, you know. So everybody, everybody knows that, that Helen is Helen of Troy, right? And, and that's because she leaves her home, elopes with this guy and causes a war. And I thought, well, is that it? Is that all we need to know? You know, there's a version of Helen's story, which is at least as old as Homer, at least as old as the Iliad, where Helen goes to Troy. Well, she doesn't go to Troy. She goes to Egypt and has this completely blameless time there. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Today, we'll be diving into novels and nonfiction books that bring mythology alive. We'll be talking to Jennifer Saint with her new one, Electra, and to Natalie Haynes with her newest, Pandora's Jar. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan Henry. I am by no means an expert in mythology, but I can say that I've had a lifelong fascination with the stories that seem to undergird all other stories. I've been reading them, studying them, picking them apart. So I'm thrilled for today. So first, let's meet Jennifer Saint. Due to her lifelong fascination with ancient Greek mythology, Jennifer Saint read classical studies at King's College in London. Then she spent the next 13 years as an English teacher, sharing a love of literature and creative writing with her students. 
Ariadne was her first novel and received huge praise. It was a Sunday Times bestseller, and now her second retelling of ancient myth is out around Clytemnestra and her daughter Electra. Jennifer Saint is now a full-time author, living in Yorkshire, England, with her husband and two children. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome. Yes. I'm so glad that you're here. Can you tell us about Electra? What PW called, for those of you out there, Publishers Weekly, called a brilliant feminist revision of the Greek myth of the house of Atreus. Am I saying that right? Or is Atreus? Atreus, yeah. Um, well, so hi. And okay. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for that wonderful introduction. Um, so yeah, I would be delighted to tell you about Electra. Um, so it is a novel which takes place against the backdrop of the Trojan War. But while the Trojan War is raging in the background, the story is told by the three women who are fighting their own separate conflicts. And that's Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon, who has led the Greek ships against Troy. There is Cassandra, a priestess of Troy, who is cursed by Apollo to be able to see the future, but never to be believed. So she knows what's coming for her city, but she can do nothing to prevent it. And of course, Electra, who is the daughter of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, who spends her her time in her father's absence wishing that he would come home again to put everything right but nurturing this very dangerous delusion as to the nature of what her father truly is one of my favorite questions when we talk about these stories is what is the story about and then what you just told us and then jennifer what is it really about so I think what it is really about um, at its heart is about a mother-daughter relationship that has gone so terribly, terribly wrong. And it's about these two women who are so very much alike each other, so very similar to one another, that they cannot understand where the other one is coming from. And when they come up against each other, they meet in this terrible conflict from which neither of them feels able to step back. And it's about the, the consequences of that. Well, that's what I was going to say. I feel like when I was reading it, I could, I have a daughter and mm -hmm. of course I am a daughter and the, the conflict and yet the bond and the mirroring between the two of them is astounding. So I have loved the story of Ariadne. I know I never pronounce anything right. And Electra, all of my myth loving days. And I know they say that they are forgotten women in mythology but I can tell you that I have never forgotten them. So tell me why Electra this time? What was the spark that made you want to write the book. I mean, I think she's even been in opera, right? Yeah, that's right. So Electra is, um, it, it's, it's a really famous story. The story of Clytemnestra and Electra, I think is really well known. And it's, in, in mythology, a lot of the time, um, these stories kind of branch off and there's all sorts of different versions of them and they've been told differently by all these different people in, in different times and places. But this is one where it feels more than any other myth, like there perhaps is this quite definitive version that exists that we know. So I was interested to come at it from a different angle. And that's really that when we meet Electra in the existing versions, she's a fully grown woman who already has this very deep resentment against her mother and this um, very consuming obsession with her father. And she's already in that place 
and the damage has already been done. So what I was really interested to do, what drew me to tell this story was to work backwards in her life and to actually understand how she came to this point. And I thought it was particularly interesting that she has this, this very fractured relationship with her mother, Clytemnestra, when Clytemnestra, who is such a, such a compelling character in mythology, this incredibly strong, incredibly defiant and vengeful woman, I thought it was so interesting that she is driven in her actions by maternal love and yet things go so desperately awry with her surviving children. So to kind of piece that together, it felt almost as though this is like um, a puzzle and that I had to go and and work out how it got put together because I just felt like their story started almost at the end and there was so much more of it to tell um, that took place before. Well, and without giving spoilers, Clymenestra, what she did was out of pure love for her other child. And yet it creates a rift with the child that remains. And it's such a fascinating dual, almost the shadow self and the positive self, the real self and the to these mirroring against each other, which is what mythology does the best. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just, it's this way of exploring these very extreme emotions and these very um, sort of terrifying situations. And I know writing it as a mother myself, I found that like mm-hmm. so difficult in so many ways, but such a, it's just something that I really, really couldn't resist doing. It comes across too, because I, I think as a reader, we just like, I couldn't get enough. I just couldn't like, what happens next? What happens next? We kind of know some of the basics, but, but you inject so much emotion into it. It's so amazing. But what I want to know is now we can never, you know, identify mythology's primary sources, obviously, but what did you use as a jumping point for the story? And, and then what part of it then did you use to make up beyond that? So I really started with Aeschylus's tragedy of Agamemnon, um, which is is probably, I suppose, the the most famous, I think, kind of one of the most defining versions of the story. And that creates, Aeschylus created such a really dynamic portrait of Clytemnestra. In that play, she is incredibly powerful and she's incredibly intimidating and she just, she controls everything. She's kind of a, a puppet master in Mycenae. And although a lot of the other characters resent her and they fear her, they don't dare to cross her at any point. She's absolutely and utterly ferocious. And, and yet we we really sympathise with her in so many ways. I think certainly as a modern audience, um, she's not, although she's been quite maligned by history and in particular held up as an example of an especially bad wife and she's compared um, in terms of the the Trojan War wives she's often compared to Penelope who waited faithfully at home for Odysseus to return whereas she is um she's the nightmare version of Penelope and um, she's not going to wait at home and, and look after the kingdom and fend off the other suitors she's going to spend that time taking power and planning what she's going to do next um so I felt that um she there was there was something to be redeemed in in that version of Clytemnestra um, that we can really understand where she's coming from and why she behaves as she does. So the Aeschylus's portrayal of her, I just think, was such a 
such a brilliant place to start. But like I said, there was a lot more to fill in. And that's particularly when it comes to Electra's character, because she is quite... Um, she's nowhere near as kind of multifaceted as her mother is in Aeschylus's version. So I had to look um, at other tragedies. So Euripides and Sophocles both wrote tragedies entitled Electra that gave me a lot more ideas about her story and her situation. And then beyond that, there is, um, there's references to, to, these characters in the Odyssey, there's the Iliad to call on, particularly for Cassandra's parts in the Trojan War. So there was, there was a huge wealth of sources to draw on to really kind of put the whole thing together. It's like a puzzle. And it's fascinating to me that we do it with all characters, all through history, not just mythology, but one is sainted, Penelope, when really she, she wasn't that much of a saint, and then demonized, and at Clemestra, and she really had com reasons. If you know the backstory, the origin story, you can't demonize her. So to simplify these characters when you bring their true stories to life, those reductions don't work anymore. Yeah, and it's the way that women are always compared to one another in a way that men are just not. I think that um, Clytemestra and Penelope, they're held up as these, as these two examples of wives, but nobody at any point seems to be saying, well, how do Odysseus and Agamemnon stack up as husbands? Because neither of them um, would come out of that comparison particularly well. So um, yeah, I, I, really, I really felt that as well. So I've heard mythology described as so many things. And when people ask me why I care so much about it, why I read so much of it, I try to describe it. And one of my favorites is that it isn't a true story, but it's always true. And to me, myths somehow hit, nail the deeper part of who we are. They're sometimes like a tuning fork. We recognize the story, even if we don't know the story. How would you define a myth? I mean, that is a really beautiful encapsulation of it. And I think that that really, I, <laughs> I think that really goes to the heart of why we're still, why we are still reading these stories, why we are still retelling them. Um, they were being told 3000 years ago, but we can still find that connection and um, that shared humanity that really unites us all, that we can all understand who these people were. So even if they were living in a world which seems quite alien and unfamiliar to us and living in a society with, you know, very different beliefs, very different customs, very different habits, we can still see that these people experiencing grief, experiencing loss, heartbreak, love, joys, all these um, complicated feelings and anxieties. And I think that, you know, when it comes to the story of Clytemnestra and Electra, we can see that we have got, um, throughout a lot of, of the novel, the way that I've written it, we've got a teenage girl kicking back against her mother. And it's it's something that we can see it just as clearly today as we can see it taking place, you know, thousands of years ago. And I think that mythology just gives us that opportunity for catharsis, for understanding and for exploring this kind of right to the very dark edges, right to the very extremes of the human experience. Oh wow. my gosh, I love that dark edges. I just wrote that down. <laughs> That's awesome. That's exactly what it does. It's it, And we recognize it, but we don't know how to articulate it. But when we read a myth, we recognize that. Yeah. So I love that. That's, that's beautiful. 
It is. And you, you touched on this a few minutes ago, but why do you think that the female mythology characters are the ones that need to be brought to life? I, mean, I think that we're kind of looking at it through a, a feminist lens in the modern day, but why do you think it's important for us to revisit them? So I think in particular, in sort of more recent versions of mythology and especially versions aimed at children and so probably the ones that we've grown up with and the ones that we tell our own children the female characters have in the past couple of centuries been pushed to the sidelines while tragedians like Euripides were writing these very complex nuanced female characters I think they've kind of fell out of favour for a little while and in favour of instead presenting the heroes. And of course, the ancient perception, uh, kind of concept of what a hero is, is really quite different to ours. And so you had characters um, like Jason and Theseus, who suddenly become these sort of swashbuckling, noble, brave adventurers, which really, when, when you look at the ancient sources and what they actually did, they were never like that at all. It's really um, their their fame, their heroism was about strength and glory. And it often took a huge amount of ruthlessness to get there. So these kind of great heroes like Heracles and so on are, are not what we would think of as being particularly heroic today. But they've kind of, they've been through some sort of process where the kind of unsavory, more brutal elements of their characters and their stories have perhaps been stripped away. And that reduces the female characters then, because they are then on the sides of the story. They're the damsels in distress or they're a wicked temptress or, you know, they're some kind of one dimensional archetype. And actually, when we go back to the story as it first existed, when we look at the ways in which it's evolved and the ways in which it's been told, you can peel back these layers and you can find, oh, underneath that story that I thought I knew, there is this other fascinating story. There is there are so many more elements to it that I didn't even know were there. And there's always more to discover. And I think that if you come at it from one of these characters who's perhaps been a little bit flattened and had the edges brushed off, um, then you that's the way into the the real myth, the real story at the heart of it. That's so true. Wow. So say, please say that there's another woman mythological story that you're bringing to life next. Yes, that absolutely is. So I'm really excited (laughs) um, to be able to talk about it. Um, So I'm currently editing my third novel and after a lecture, which is this very, very dark story, I was really ready to bring some some light and adventure um, into my next mythology retelling. So my next one is going to be about Atalanta, who is the only woman to have joined the Argonauts. Oh. I just got chilled. That's awesome. People can't see this, but I was like leaning in. I, I was like, is it, is, it, is it Eurydice? Is it Persephone? Who's she going to say? That's amazing. I can't wait. It's awesome. So personally, it's, it's, it's so obvious that you're passionate about this area of writing and this part of uh, mythology. What does it do for you? What, does it change you? Does it, does it affect you in, in other ways? So... Yeah, I mean, I think that writing is this this kind of transformative process. It kind of so. I mean, this is a re- this is a really interesting question, and I don't think I've been asked it quite like this before. So I'm kind of trying to gather my thoughts into a coherent answer. Um, but yeah, I think that writing really lets you get in touch with 
all of those things that you fear the most or desire the most and you get to be in charge of it when you're writing these stories so I found some scenes in Electra particularly difficult to write and I think like you'll know which ones they are when you've read the novel um but I think that when you're the you're the architect of it and you're creating it that that's a really powerful experience to go through um because you get to face whatever that is and even if it works out tragically in the novel um there is still I think that real process of of kind of um like I've been there I've been I've been to that extreme and I've come back and it yeah I, I think that it's something that probably makes you kind of braver and bolder in in all aspects of your life I think that's a great you, answer you totally knew what to say <laughs> and I it, it goes back to what you said earlier about the dark edges I think reading about them and especially, I would believe, writing about them, we have to tap into the shadow side we don't like to look at very often. And you still come back to yourself. So I really love that. If our listeners out there really want to dive even deeper into myth and mythological history and stories after they've read your books, what what would you tell someone like that who says, you know what, I want to dive deeper into mythology? Where would they begin? Um, well, I think there are so many, so many um, really accessible ways to get into mythology now. Um, it's having such a kind of boom at the moment. So I'd say it's a perfect time. Um, and I think if, if it was somebody who really wanted to start from the beginning, I think a great place to start is with Stephen Fry's books. Um, he's, he's written Mythos and Heroes and Troy. Um, the audio versions are absolutely brilliant as well. And that really, that's kind of like a guide to all, all the mythology um, that you need to know, I think told in a very kind of engaging, funny, accessible way. And um, also, and so I, so assuming this is out in the States as well, um, I would say Charlotte Higgins' Greek myths, which is absolutely amazing because she's taken the process. So in mythology, in the ancient world, weaving is this incredibly important um, skill that um, is largely possessed by women. And she has these, I think it's eight heroines of mythology, weaving tapestries. And through the tapestries, they tell the stories. It's a really, really clever way in. Um, so that's absolutely wonderful. And that's a really female-centred um, perspective on mythology. So I think those would be great places to start. You've mentioned that you've got Natalie Haynes on this episode and Pandora's Jar is such a, um, such a, witty knowledgeable introduction um kind of um analysis of those again i think it's eight female characters of mythology mm -hmm. so there's just um i think that there's so much to choose from i love that it's all here uh, these stories are ancient but they feel so modern when you retell them now and and we relate to them so much and, and the passion comes through in the writing and that's why i think we're drawn to them as readers so i i just thank you so much for being here where can people find you online and, and know more about you and your work oh so um so i'm on twitter as at jenny saint and i'm on instagram as well jennifer.saint.author awesome jennifer thank you so much for joining us i you know i could to have this discussion, obviously, for hours. I'll probably email you when we're done. But to talk about what they mean to us today and the retellings, and I love seeing how mythology is kind of having a moment in, in popular culture because 
of all our stories, it rests at the bottom of our stories and it, it shimmers under there just like a, like the capstone of, of a building. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Our next guest is Natalie Haynes, author of the recently published Pandora's Jar, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for two weeks and counting as of this recording. Natalie is a writer and broadcaster, and according to the Washington Post, a rock star mythologist. She has previously published the novels The Amber Fury, The Children of Jocasta, and A Thousand Ships. Her nonfiction work, The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, and her newly released Pandora's Jar mix her well-known comedic talent with her deep knowledge of ancient myths and legends. Of Pandora's Jar, none other than Margaret Atwood said, funny, sharp explications of what these sometimes not very nice women were up to and how they sometimes made idiots of, but read on. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful accolade. <laughs> Yeah, that was a really good day when that happened. Yes. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, blame I do not blame you. I'm all cool about it now. <laughs> I wish I would have seen you the day like, you got uh, it. The day you got it, yes. <laughs> I think we were under lockdown in London where I live. So I'm pretty sure I was just, I probably went for a celebratory walk on my own. <laughs> Around the block, right? They only yes. let you out for like a minute. Well, welcome to the podcast, Natalie. We're so Thank happy you. to have you. Yes. I'm a self-proclaimed mythology geek and lover, but, Good. oh my goodness, you know, those high school years of Latin paid off um, Always. Because, because we had to study mythology. So you can see behind me, those of you listening can't, but behind me are just stacks and stacks of mythology books, but definitely not a scholar like you are. So I want to say congratulations on Pandora's Jar being so beautifully received it's quite an honor, the New York Times list and all the accolades. I'm, I cannot wait to talk about it. But before we take a deeper dive, can you give our listeners the overview of this book of Pandora's Jar to kind of give a sense of what the readers are in for? Yeah, of course. So what I wanted to do with Pandora's Jar was, truthfully, I had just written three quite harrowing novels in a row. And A Thousand Ships was probably the most harrowing of the three. Uh, because it just has so many women and so many states of, of, you know, awful things happening to them. And I was pretty, pretty burned out. And I realized that what I needed to do, what I wanted to do, was to write a book where I could examine these kinds of women from the outside looking in instead of from the inside imagining them out, which is just a, it's just a lot more painful. <laughs> to be honest, like, what would it be like if I were, oh, <laughs> it was basically my working day for a really long time. But I knew these stories weren't as well known as 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 some versions of them were, you know. So everybody, everybody, everybody knows that that, that Helen is Helen of Troy, right? That and, and that's because she leaves her home, elopes with this guy, and causes a war. And I thought, well, is that it? Is that all we need to know? You know, there's a version of Helen's story which is at least as old as Homer at least as old as the Iliad, where Helen goes to Troy. Well, she doesn't go to Troy. She goes to Egypt and has this completely blameless time there. But the gods create an image of her, and Erdalon looks and sounds exactly like her. 
That gets sent to Troy. The war is fought in the exact same way. So her name is still mud. You know, the Greeks still <laughs> think of her as a terrible adulteress. The Trojans still see her as, you know, the bane of their city. And at the end of the war, when the Greeks finally get their hands, physically get their hands on the Erdalon of Helen, it disappears into the air that it was made of. And, and still they blame her. You know, it's the most incredible image metaphor for the futility of war of course um but she still she still gets blamed either way and i thought i'm not sure people even know about the version where she goes to egypt and i think they might be interested and so i thought well who, you know who else could i do can i do a set of these women and it was like well okay there are some very bad women in greek myth who i definitely wanted to do like clytemnestra the worst wife in all of greek myth and i'm like is she though because in aeschylus's agamemnon she isn't I mean, she's a bad wife if you're her husband. Obviously, he does, spoiler, die. Um, so, uh, so she does murder him. But she is a, she's a sort of venging fury. He murdered their daughter. She kills him in revenge. And generally in, in Greek myth, and particularly in Greek tragedy, that's not seen as a, as a bad way to behave. That's seen as, as a relatively you know, noble way to behave. And he, and killed, so her, thought, he killed her daughter in front of her. I, I mean, I mean, at, he made at her a fake wedding. It's yes. just the absolute. He does it in the absolute at the edge worst of the river. way possible. At, Killing him in a thousand ships was honestly one of the best days at the office I've ever had. I could have done it twice. I was yep. so happy. I was just like, bang, and there he goes. <laughs> Maybe I'll just go back and twist that knife one more time. I mean, it was just a joy. I hate him. Absolutely hate him. So, you know, spoiler, I was rooting for her. And then I thought the reason the book is called Pandora's Jar is because I think one of the very few phrases that comes to us from Greek myth isn't from Greek myth at all. You know, Trojan horse. Yes, that one counts. But Pandora's box doesn't exist until Erasmus, the Dutch scholar, is, is writing about Pandora. He's translating Hesiod, 2,000 years old at that point, um, from Greek into Latin, and he makes a mistake. He just mistranslates the word pithos, jar, into the word pixis, box. And they're different things. You look at a Greek jar in any museum of, you know, antiquities. There are some beautiful ones, obviously, in the Metropolitan Museum in New York, in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, in the, you know, Getty Villa in uh, Malibu. Um, and you can see they're all glued back together. Don't put all the world's evils in a jar. <laughs> they break really easily. They're really narrow at the base. They're really fat at the top. But it doesn't take much for Pandora to become a villain if you give her a box and not a jar, because soon you start to see artwork of her, you know, malevolently opening this strong box to let all the... There are versions of Pandora's story, for example, the elegies by Theognis, um, in which the jar is full of nice things and not bad things. There are versions of her story, one version told by Aesop of Fables fame, where it's her husband who opens the jar and not her at all. But all of those get lost so we can blame a pretty woman. And I thought, well, it would be nice to be able to say to people, that's not actually how these stories always were. What happens to the Pandora story, of course, is that it gets mapped onto the Eve story. Um, the idea of a beautiful woman who undoes men is, you know, that's that's the narrative of of Genesis. But Pandora is very specifically described by Hesiod as being kalon kakon. She is good and bad, um, you know, beautiful and ugly if you prefer to go visual. But of course, what happens in translations of that phrase, which is a deliberate parallel, kalon kakon, good, bad, um, what happens is that it gets translated as beautiful evil. So the good quality becomes visual and the bad quality becomes moral. And I thought, well, I have a problem with that. <laughs> so I'm going to write a book and complain about it. And it went really well. Hooray. <laughs> 
And what's fascinating is so many of these problems, I don't care whether it's mythology, the Bible, what it comes in the translation of it in the, in the translation that makes women at fault or I'm so geeking out on this. This is so amazing. And it reminds me Pandora's jar, a lot of the retelling of, of legends and myths in women who run with wolves, Mm -hmm. Clarissa Pinkett, where she takes these legends and tells them from the outside, from a woman's point of view, just like you're doing, and says, can we rethink the assumptions that we get yeah. out of these stories, the assumptions that are so built into our human psyche about a woman eating an apple, a woman opening a jar, a woman killing her husband. And and if we and I've read a version of Pandora's jar, not box, where what she released out of it was hope. And that yeah, just well, normally the hope stays in the jar. Normally, yeah. in almost every ancient version, when she has a jar, which is by no means all, every visual representation of Pandora from the ancient world that survives to us today shows her in the act of being created, no jar in sight, no receptacle of any kind in sight. The important thing for the ancient Greeks is that she is the first woman, um, which means that the carefree age of men comes to an end, according to Hesiod. Well, bad luck, men. <laughs> Sucks to be you right now. You can't just hang out as bros together around your cold no fire because you don't have one of those either. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, these these things do these things do ha- happen in in terms of translation. You're absolutely right, and it's not always even. Uh, a, a gendered issue. So also in um, Erasmus, he talks about, um, he translates a phrase which still appears in vernacular English today, where I might not say it, but my parents' generation for sure would say of somebody very blunt, they would say, oh, she likes to call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. And that comes from Erasmus. But the word scaffer in Greek doesn't mean spade. It's a mistake. It means a hollowed out object like a canoe. So in fact, we should say, oh, she likes to call a canoe a canoe. But we don't do that because Erasmus came along and ruined it for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, it's not always a gendered issue, but it often is a gendered issue. And sometimes it's because we have a source like Hesiod who who just doesn't like women. He's, you know, he's very quick after describing Pandora in, in the shorter account that he gives us in the Theogony to just go off on a rant about how we're not as good as bees. And it's like, dude. I, you're kind of hurting my feelings. It's undeniably <laughs> the case that when it comes to making honey, I am inferior to a bee. But in other regards, I am better than a bee. How dare you? And so I kind of thought, well, that 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 sense of being sort of wronged, but it, having I can't help it. There is something so ridiculous in it that I I just really enjoyed, you know, unpicking these stories. And often it's the case that in our ancient sources, there are versions where they're much less misogynistic than than the sort of received versions as we would think of them now. And you're right, it's just been a question of stories being translated or simplified. Often it's the case that a story gets um, kind of sanitized, sort of, for a children's version. And it's very, very hard for us, I think, if we read a, a children's version as a child, to not believe that that's the right version as we grow up. And that that's the version from which all other versions deviate. But of course, the people who wrote those children's versions were just writers. They weren't, they didn't have some mystical access to the myth truth. So sometimes that, you know, myths have multiple timelines in the time in which it's set, the time in which it's written, the time in which it's read. And those are all lying on top of each other, you know, like, like thin, thin layers of, of uh, aged parchment. So you can see through the whole thing if you try, but you do have to try because sometimes it's 19th century or 20th century misogyny that you're reading 
and and the 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 misogynistic account actually wasn't there in the ancient world or this element of it wasn't there in the ancient world and you know pandora's jar is a good instance of that but hippolytus war belt is another you know universally translated for for centuries as hippolytus girdle that hercules heracles to give him his greek name goes to claim and it's always translated as a woman's belt a girdle um which is a sort of ungendered, thin belt. But the word in Greek, in every single source we have, is zoster, war belt. It's the same word that describes the war belts worn by men fighting in the Iliad. The word for a woman's belt is zona. It's a completely different word. But every single translation, you can just imagine these lovely old professors in Oxford or Cambridge or wherever 200 years ago going, well, what would my wife wear? And you go, dude, it's not, it's not about your wife. It's about an Amazon warrior queen. So... You know, these problems happen, but it is possible to get through and, and kind of unpick them if you're prepared to go back to the Greek or the Latin. Well, wow. the problem is not everyone. Most people just want a simple story, a simple reason, mm. a simple story, a simple um, moral to the story that you can carry away in your hand like a little For sure. gem. And they don't want to take the time to dig deeper to what its original meaning was in almost any story. They want to walk away with the simplest version and I love that you're undoing that. That's amazing. I mean, it's terrific news for me. I'm not going to lie, because I do have the both time and energy to mine these myths and hunt around them and say, OK, well, what other versions are there? OK, well, what did these people in this part of ancient Greece think about this character? Why do they claim this character if this character is so reviled? Why are there such massive temples to this god or goddess if they're so horrible in this version of their story or that version of their story? And then, you know, I, then I get all the joy of doing the research and other people can, can read a version where they can go, oh, OK, maybe it's not just the version I read as a kid. And it's like, no, it honestly isn't. There are loads of versions and there is no right version. These stories, you know, bubbled up across the Greek world, across generations. They're being told all over the place. And that's why they're so contradictory, you know, often because different locations want to attach themselves to a heroic narrative. And that's kind of wonderful. It's wonderful that, you know, Helen belongs to all these different bits of Greece or Aphrodite or, you know, Hercules, Heracles, another case in point. And it's like Achilles, um, you, it, it, all across Greece for hundreds of years, there must have been people saying to a bard, now tell us the story about when this person came to our neck of the woods. Now tell us what it was like when they were here. How wonderful that everybody wants to claim these characters as their own. And what's fascinating, too, is not only you mentioned the temples or the chapels for them, things were built on top of them. And it's just like there's stories. Another story is built on top. Another story is built on top. Another temple is built on top. Another temple is built on top. Till the original is all hidden underneath. Absolutely. And, and the same thing is happening with stories as well as stories, if you see what I mean. So in yep. the same way that it's happening in the, in the material world, it's happening in the narrative world. So we get, of course, we lose access to you know, how many Troys are there on the site of, of Troy as, as Schliemann believed it to be? I mean, 10, 12, something like that, one under. And he dug through, you know, this sort of rogue archaeologist dug through the, the right period Troy, 12th, 13th century BCE Troy, because it was too boring and he wanted more excitement. So he went right through it. And we do that with stories all the time. You know, we just, we see the version that's, that, that most easily fills our, fulfills our, preconceived ideas and that's the one we cleave to but why should we when there are other versions how how cool to get the rest of the story or at least some more of the story I, I i don't know i find it really strange when people 
people want the right answer. You know, what's the real version of this? It's like the, the joy of it is that it's, it's spherical. You know, this is a whole world yes. that you can look at from any angle and you'll find a different bit of the story. And that's, that's why it's myth. That's what's so thrilling about it. And that's what exactly I try what to you've explain. Done. Yeah. When, yeah. When people say, why are you so fascinated with mythology? I'm just going to take that, that recording of you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> just play it in the face. <laughs> just play it on my phone. Okay. Yeah, okay. There right go. in their ear. And, yes. then, and then if they flinch, turn it up. <laughs> As the high school kid who was part of a collective groan whenever mythology was brought up, I have to just give you props for this book because it really made these stories accessible and turned them on their head and they're fascinating and they're, they're, they're readable and it's just a whole different thing than when we had to read was it Ms. Hamilton's version of it. Um, but I want to uh, kind of take a deeper dive and have everybody understand your process. So could we take one of the sections like Medusa, my favorite, and maybe well, kind of walk us through novel, the process? So if you want to hear about Medusa, oh, you can. Okay. But you're spoiling yourself for the next uh, book. That I won't spoil. You let's, know, let's, so you know. let's review how you put Pandora together then in the book. Okay. Well, I tried to start with what I thought might be a version that people knew, because I think generally I try to do that with Greek myth because it's, it's an important part of, of being a nerd, I think, is that you have to accept that y you have maybe spent more time thinking about this than many people ever will. And that's not a helpful way to begin a dialogue with them. So with, for example, with A Thousand Ships, I began the novel at the point where the Trojan horse appears and the city falls because it's like, you know, I don't, I don't believe that lots of people know all the details or the consequences of the Trojan War or the build up to the Trojan War. But I think a lot of people know there's a wooden horse. So I'm going to start with the horse and we'll take it from there. And it meant I had to run timelines forwards and backwards simultaneously through the novel, which was hilarious, but only in retrospect. Um, and so I sort of did the same thing I thought with, with Pandora, because it's the opening chapter of the book. I thought I'll start with what, what seemed to me one of the more famous images of her, which is a pre-Raphaelite painting. Um, by Rossetti of Pandora. And it's just an extraordinary kind of deeply red picture. She, you know, what she's wearing is red. There's a sense of fire and burning in it that the word is even written on the, the box casket that she's holding. The model for Pandora was Jane Morris, who, with whom he was having a, I mean, we have to assume it was a phenomenally exciting affair um, because it certainly looks that way from the painting. Um, and he, Rossetti made the casket, this sort of beautiful jeweled box that she's holding, and she's just starting to open it. And there's this very thin kind of plume of orange smoke coming out of it. And you're like, I'm not sure what's in there, but it doesn't look good. So I thought I'll talk you through this painting. And hopefully that will make people who perhaps hadn't particularly thought about Greek myth, but had enjoyed seeing the consequences of it on the, you know, walls of galleries or, you know, walking past the statues of it or whatever. I thought, well, I'll do that and then we'll see where we are. And I got to the end of that chunk and I was like, yeah, okay, you know what, this could actually start the book. That's fine. Um, and so then I thought, well, I need to take you back to the beginning. So the versions that we have in Hesiod. And then I thought, well, uh, then I need to talk you through this, the bit where ancient visual images of her are completely different. You know, they always show her being created, which means she's being kind of sculpted. The word in Greek is a kore, a maiden, a young woman, a woman of marriageable age is how it always used to be translated. My editor will always write, how old is that? And you're like, please don't ask. It's like 14 in ancient Greece. You don't want to know. Um, and so she's, she's 
she's always been kind of freed from the earth because she's sculpted by clay by the god Hephaestus. Um, and it, it looks a lot in, in the versions that we have of, of this scene on vase paintings, like she's being, she's free, you free somebody when you're sculpting them from clay from the earth uh, with hammers. All right. So it looks a little bit like the um, clincher scene in Heathers, <laughs> except with actual hammers rather than croquet mallets. <laughs> it's like she's not being accosted, I promise. She's being freed from the earth. Although I do see that the only thing I need to make that sentence sound less plausible is to add the words, your honour, to the end of it. But anyway, there we go. <laughs> and so I, I tried to just hunt around. I watched films with Pandora. I asked around on social media and said, what's your favourite version of the Pandora narrative and pop culture? And, you know, that's... Otherwise, I might not have found, you know, the Aerosmith song. Um, uh, and, and you want that. <laughs> At least I want that, too. I want, if I'm talking about Helen of Troy, to include, you know, the episode of Star Trek, original series Star Trek, where a version of, of Helen appears. So it's kind of, it's both, I hope, quite a scholarly process. My desk, yes. I'm just looking over to the side, as you can, um, as you guys can see, even if people at home can't, where there's a pile of books so high that at any moment <laughs> they could all go Topple and I'll be over. lost for good. <laughs> so there is a lot of, you know, reading in Greek and reading in Latin and unpicking these narratives and finding older sources. There's a lot of hunting down ancient art. Um, but there's also a lot of, you know, maybe I'll now watch this, you know, completely bonkers film noir which, which has people pursuing a, a and then once you start hunting for the idea of the sort of a box that has something in it that we all want but no one knows what it is which is very much what happens in the pandora narrative then you soon find yourself in all kinds of places like pulp fiction going oh yeah no there's that suitcase which just has light in it and and that's all we know so what is it and why do we want it so badly and so it's it's just a sort of there are definitely characters in it that i could have included but didn't um and there are um bits of their story that i wanted to include and couldn't fit in and i've it's that sort of thing where you go that's fine actually it would be awful if everything you'd found was in the book um, it's lovely having other things to talk about when I do interviews, but also it's just lovely being able to kind of choose the things that most interest you on the day. If I'd written it a year later or even a month later, they would be different examples for sure. Absolutely. And it's fascinating to see, and not everybody can see it. And I didn't, I thought about it right when you said it, the influence of mythology in modern day storytelling, of course, stories are built on stories are built on stories. But it even made me think of that package at the end of Castaway with Tom Hanks. Like, what's in the box? What's and they in never the box? They never tell us what's in the box. Um, We're left to our own imagination. And so this, this kind of echo of mythology through time is it's amazing. I mean, in a way, it, it sort of goes against the grain of the Pandora story. But there is something beautiful about not knowing, I think, uncertainty uncertainty it's it's not the scholar in me that feels that way i guess it's the writer in me but it's actually okay to say you know i i i don't know if other people do this but i definitely do i have one book one one really short book of stories by borges which i've never read because i love him and once i've read it i won't have Anybody it to look forward to it. anymore and I'll have read all of it. And then I won't have new Borges. And it used to drive my ex-boyfriend crazy. This is not why we broke up subtext. Um, <laughs> but it did nonetheless used to drive him crazy. He was like, but what if you got hit by a bus? I should say, in fairness to him, I'm a terrible road crosser. He said, but what if you got hit by a bus and you would, ne you would have died not having read them? And I said, I would rather have them to look forward to than have 
I, I'll live with that risk. Even when I cross the road as badly as I do, I will live with that because I love the idea of a thing that I have, have to look forward to, but I don't know what it is yet. It's the play interplay between certainty and uncertainty, right? right. Between, between needing to know the answer as a scholar and being okay with not knowing the answer because it's a story. Yes. All right. I am curious which of the women you wrote about that was the most surprising to you. Oh, surprising is a really hard question to answer because there were women in the book that I'd already written about in my fiction. Um, so I'd written about Jocasta and Helen and Penelope. And so I thought, oh, yeah, no, I know, and, you know, Clytemnestra. I thought, I know loads about these women. That's absolutely fine. No problem there at all. And then there were versions of their stories which I found which just blindsided me. The end of the Helen chapter focuses on a fragment of a Sophocles play, which is lost called The Demand for Helen's Return, of which I think three fragments survive, tiny fragments. Um, and I was so shocked when I read this fragment, I had to go and hunt down the Greek. So I could, I was like, I must have made a, there must be a mistake where Helen is so kind of appalled by the fact that she's caused the deaths of all these men in the war. Helen often takes responsibility for the war from the Iliad onwards. I should say Paris very rarely does uh, for reasons entirely clear. Um, and Helen is so appalled by what she feels responsible for that she is self-harming. She's, she's scratching her face with uh, writing implements in this fragment. And I thought, are you kidding me? This is two and a half thousand years old, this version. And this, the world's most beautiful woman is disfiguring her beautiful face, the thing that has made her world famous, using the exact tools that men have used to celebrate her and make her world famous, writing implements. And I thought that can't, that feels like it was written 20 minutes ago. How is that possible? And yet there it was, you know, this, this extraordinary fragment. But in terms of the whole character surprising me, hmm, that's a really tricky one. Maybe the Amazons in the end. There oh. were so many Amazon stories that I felt like I knew. And then the idea of them as a sort of gang, a girl gang, um, was just this, it was just a side to them that I maybe hadn't picked up on. I, I felt like the big reveal in things like the Jocasta chapter, spoiler, she doesn't always die. <laughs> Sometimes she goes on to be quite a successful diplomat. I sort of already knew because I'd researched that when I wrote Children of Jocasta. So sometimes I'd kind of spoiled things for myself. But I mean, the most fun one probably was, was Penelope because she is sort of trapped in a different kind of prison because she is the good wife, the perfect wife. You know, Waiting. The, She's just waiting. The, That's all she she's is doing. Waity, waity she's Penelope. Yes. Um, and so to find versions of the story where she, in fact, does not wait, but goes hell for leather with one of the suitors, absolutely delightful. <laughs> Good. I'm glad in one version she gets laid. I'm all in favor of this. <laughs> well, her husband's <laughs> off running around with a witch. 20 freaking years. She's yeah, allowed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I enjoyed enormously finding out versions of Penelope where, you know, and we get so used to this sort of saintly version of her. But that's the version that's told by men who don't know her. You know, when Agamemnon says in the Odyssey, oh, the gods themselves will, will write a beautiful poem to Penelope. It's like, dude, when did you last meet her? You know, the, the suitors have just arrived in the underworld. It's more than 20 years since you last met this woman. And as far as I can tell, you would have only met her at most twice. Once when you went to scoop up Odysseus and take him to the war effort, and maybe when all the men of Greece come to try and woo her cousin, Helen of Sparta, as she still is at that point, uh, Helen of Troy yet to be. Um, and so 
when you say she's the perfect wife, the gods adore her, what you mean is she didn't complain when her husband was away for 20 years. She didn't murder him when he came home. She's she was just a really good, yeah, she kept son. the house up and was a good single mom. And it's yeah. like, well, okay. Um, I'm not sure that tells me very much about her as a person. (laughs) So, you know, but then Ovid comes along a few hundred years later in his Heroides, and he gives her a poem in her own voice where she's writing a letter to the absent, well, Ulysses, as he calls Odysseus, because he uses their Roman names, of course. Um, And in that version, I mean, it's just the most audacious piece of writing. We see a scene from the Iliad where Odysseus goes off and is brave, a uh, sequence that's usually known as the Dolanea, where he and his friend Diomedes go off in the cover of darkness um, and uh, find and trap this uh, Trojan spy and they basically torture him and then kill him. And it's presented in the Iliad as a fantastically heroic narrative. And then when Ovid comes along and takes on this part of the story but gives the voice to Penelope, she could not be less impressed. She's like, oh, I'm sure you were thinking of me and your son when you were going off with your night antics. And it's like, yeah, what looks like heroics when it's men telling tales of their heroic endeavours to other men to the woman waiting at home for her husband to come back just looks foolhardy. And and actually, it, there's something really valuable about being able to reassess those stories, even in yeah, even in the ancient world, these stories are being reconsidered and reworked by everyone from Euripides to Ovid. So it was just lovely getting to to roll around in them for a bit. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Natalie, uh, sadly, we are running out of time with you. And you are endlessly fascinating. Your book and your work is the same. And I hope that we get another opportunity to continue this because I could do this all week. I could do well, this yes, all Well, yes, please. Week. Can I come back and talk to you about the Medusa novel yes. next year? Oh, my Stone God, blind yes. Stone is what it's called. Yes, I was so – I want to – I'm, I'm in, so I hope I get to read an early copy of that. Ooh. I hope you do too. That's Somebody will send you one, right? Yes. It's, she's a oh, heartbreaker, yeah. though. I'm just warning you. <laughs> I figured she might be, but what a yeah. fascinating story. It's extraordinary. Everybody's going to want to know more about you. So where can they find you online? Oh, they can find me, well, wherever they like, really. I am lurking around on Facebook as Natalie Haynes Stand-Up Classicist. I have a podcast which is called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, and that's on BBC Sounds. And I think in the US, it's maybe also on Audible, but we've made, I should know this, seven series. So, But they're UK series, so like four episodes each. So 28 episodes. So you can hear me talking. My old job as a stand-up comedian, Yes, talking about people from the ancient world, and then two series where we don't have an audience because of COVID. But generally, we have an audience. So track that down if you'd like to. I'm lurking around on Twitter as Natalie Haynes author. You can track me down on Instagram. I think I'm even on TikTok, but I'm too old to understand it. So that obviously (laughs) requires younger people to... Okay, that BBC thing, I, yes. I just found my next binge listen. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's fun, it I hope. Yeah, it's fun. Oh, wow, wow. Okay, I'm on it. Good. Yeah. Well, people binge listen to it a lot during lockdowns here, including my mom when she missed me. This makes me a bit teary. But oh. my mom spent a whole weekend, just, she listened to all 20, whatever it was, eight episodes. And then she just went back and started again. I was like, you could just phone me. <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you while I did the ironing. But, oh, okay, fine. All right. Well, continued success with Pandora's Jar, and we are so looking forward to what you have coming next. I just, I, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's just, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And once again, thank you all for tuning into this episode of the Friends in Fiction Writers Block Podcast. On behalf of Mary Kay, Patty, Kristen, and Christy, thank you for your support of this podcast. And remember, share with a friend. 
Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletter. Remember to use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.